The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Jim, can we turn down the volume a little bit? I'm speaking as quietly as I can. Maybe, yeah, this is a little bit better. I think, how, how does the, is it a little bit too low for you guys, or is it okay? It's okay? All right. So tonight I'd like to talk a, a little bit or share about a story that uh, is in the suttas. And I think that, uh, at least for me, and actually I know for a number of people that I've uh, spoken with, it uh, has some important or meaningful or helpful uh, messages in it or something like this. So, so it's uh, a story about uh, this person named Prince Bodhi, who is a prince, not surprisingly, and uh, the Buddha. And Prince Bodhi, he had um, built a new building like a, they, they call it a long house, which I guess was not uncommon in that time in ancient India. It's just like it sounds, a long building in which people would stay. And Prince Bodhi named it the Pink Lotus Long House. And I just had this thought, like right as uh, Jim was ringing the bell, Pink Lotus Long House. I thought, if I ever open a restaurant, you know, it just kind of has like a nice sound to it, so. I don't think I will ever be opening a restaurant, but uh, if I were. So Prince Bodhi had uh, built this uh, pink lotus longhouse, and he invited the Buddha and his monastics to come and to to um, have a meal there. And, and the Buddha agreed, and so... Prince Bodhi at his own house has uh, overseas and has all the food prepared for the Buddha. This is very common at this time that uh, somebody would like oversee the preparing. Like it's, I, we don't know how many monastics, but it could have been a lot. So it might have been like a big deal to make all this food. So he makes this food, and then um, his Prince Bodhi is waiting outside his house uh, when the Buddha and his monastics show up. So Prince Bodhi kind of like welcomes, pays homage to the Buddha and says, you know, please, like, uh, after you, let's go to the Pink Lotus Longhouse. So the Buddha uh, walks to the Pink Lotus Longhouse and Prince Bodhi and all the other monastics are behind them and I guess they're bringing the food. And um, they get there, it's not too far away. And Prince Bodhi had like put this white uh, cloth like we, that went through the whole of the building and then down the front steps. Maybe we could think of like the red carpet treatment is kind of what I was thinking. And the Buddha walks up to it and he stops before he gets to this white cloth. And uh, Prince Bodhi says, Venerable Sir, Please step on the white cloth so that it may be for my welfare and happiness for a long time. And the Buddha just stands there. He doesn't step on the cloth. He doesn't say anything. He's just standing there. Prince Bodhi, a second time. Venerable Sir, 
Please step on the white cloth so that it may be for my welfare and happiness for a long time. Buddha is still just standing there. He's a patient guy, right? So he's just standing there. Doesn't say anything. He doesn't step on the cloth. And a third time, Prince Bodhi says, Venerable Sir, please step on the white cloth. <laughs> we don't know, right? This is a little my embellishment of the story, of course. But so that it may be for my welfare and happiness for a long time. So like Prince Bodhi somehow is really invested in the Buddha stepping on this white cloth. And he, we don't know exactly what Prince Bodhi was thinking, but he clearly has this idea that it would be helpful if the Buddha would step on this cloth. For It would be for his welfare and happiness for a long time. And somehow I was kind of thinking about this. You know, it's not unusual. Sometimes we have this secret wish, like, oh, if only like something out there would shift and change and be different or somebody else would do something, then I would be happy. Then my life would go right. You know, kind of like waiting for somebody or something else like out there in our external life to be different. Kind of like in some ways expecting, you know, somebody else to make us happy and kind of like issuing the responsibility we might have. So Prince Bodhi is kind of like this. So after the third time that he asks, the Buddha looks over at Ananda. Ananda is his assistant uh, and his cousin, his attendant, I should say. He looks over at Ananda. Doesn't say anything. Just looks over at Ananda. And Ananda, I give Ananda a lot of credit in what Ananda does. He says, fold up the cloth, prince. The Buddha will not step on the white cloth. He has compassion for future generations. So I like that Ananda doesn't chastise Prince Bodhi or doesn't say anything like that or doesn't say the Buddha, like, what? Why are you looking at me? (laughs) What do you want me to do? But instead, like, Ananda understood that, okay, if the Buddha's been asked three times and he still doesn't do it, it means he's just not going to do it. And so... He, so Ananda says, well, fold up the cloth. The Buddha's not going to step on it. And then he adds, the Buddha has compassion for future generations. Ananda understood what was happening, that if, Prince, if the Buddha had stepped on the cloth and Prince Bodhi said, yay, this is going to be for my happiness and welfare for a long time, then it would kind of like undermine this idea of practice, and people would think that, oh yeah, just the way to have some happiness in your life is to get somebody else to do something for you. And it's also is a way that um, kind of if in the future somebody were to, let's say, if the Buddha had stepped on the cloth and Prince Bodhi did have a great life, what would happen if in the future a monastic stepped on a white cloth and somebody didn't have happiness afterwards? That would like undermine the whole monastic community, undermine the whole idea of practice. So this just doesn't work, this whole idea. Have, just find a Buddha, get him to step on a cloth and you'll be fine. Turns out it doesn't work this way, even if you have the good fortune to meet a Buddha. So, So then we're getting back to the, the sutta. The prince says, 
Oh, so the prince, he had the cloth folded up and uh, he prepared uh, the seats where all the monastics were going to sit. And then um, Prince Bodhi, he offered uh, food by himself, which is kind of a big deal. You know, he's royalty and usually he has servants doing these kind of things. But he himself, Prince Bodhi, offers food to the monastics. And they eat and then they have their fill. And then afterwards, he has a little conversation with the Buddha. And he says... Pleasure is only gained through pain. This is what Prince Bodhi says to the Buddha. Pleasure is only gained through pain. You can only have something good if you suffer for it. Now it kind of like makes sense why Prince Bodhi wants the Buddha to step on the cloth because Prince Bodhi thinks to practice is going to be painful in order to get to have a better life or have something that's uh, pleasurable or find more freedom, more ease, more peace, you have to do something really painful. So Prince Bodhi is saying, pleasure is only gained through pain. And so then uh, the Buddha responds, well, before my awakening, I also thought that pleasure is only gained through pain. And then in order to make the point, the Buddha gives a little bit of his autobiography why the Buddha himself, before he was awakened, kind of like thought that, okay, pain is a part of practice, a necessary part of practice. Many of you know the story of uh, the Buddha's awakening. He leaves the palace that he was living in and goes to practice. He wants to find freedom, find peace. And he practices with some esteemed meditation masters, discovers some meditation, how to meditate, but didn't find peace and freedom there. So he went from one teacher to a second teacher. And then he said, well, maybe some austerity, some really intense austerities, asceticism is needed. That's the way to find freedom. And this is where the Buddha is saying, yeah, I used to think that uh, pain was the way to freedom. So he said, um, the, the Buddha is telling this story to Prince Bodhi, and he says, they, after he had left the teachers, he said, seeking the state of supreme peace, I set out to discover what is skillful. What is skillful. So if this meditation isn't going to work, what is? And then the Buddha says, Traveling, I came to Sanangama and Uvela, and there I saw this delightful grove, a lovely piece of ground with a clear flowing river and pleasant smooth banks, and nearby was a village for alms. So an ideal location to practice. Water, food, and it was a pleasant place. And the Buddha speaking, he said, so having found this lovely place, I sat down and I thought, this is a good place for endeavoring, for practicing, striving, working, applying myself. And the Buddha says, why don't I, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, squeeze, squash, and crush mind with mind? Like a strong person would grab a weaker person by the head or throat and squeeze, squash, squash, or crush them. So that's what I did until sweat poured from my armpits. 
It's quite something, right? He's like really in there striving. Mind crushing mind. This idea like, okay, I don't know exactly what awakening is or how to get there, but I'm going to force my mind to do something. There's no details here exactly what that was. But just like through force of will with his mind. So then he says, my energy was roused up and unflagging and my mindfulness was established and lucid, but my body was disturbed and not tranquil because I pushed too hard with that painful striving. So the Buddha is recognizing this crush mind with mind doesn't work. And then the Buddha continues, and then I thought, well, why don't I practice the breathing less meditation to not breathe, holding one's breath? So I cut off breathing through my mouth and nose, but violent winds cut through my head like a strong person was drilling into my head with a strong point. My energy was roused up and unflagging, and my mindfulness was established and lucid, but my body was disturbed and not tranquil because I pushed too hard with that painful striving. So here's a second practice that the Buddha did. It didn't, um, he couldn't find freedom that way. And then he includes, there's a few more um, ascetic practices that he did, and they all say, well, then it didn't work. And it was quite painful, and I didn't become awakened. And they all end with this, my energy was roused up and unflagging and my mindfulness was established and lucid. So he had energy and he had mindfulness, but he was just exhausting himself. So then he says, after he describes a a number of ascetic practices he had done, he said, whatever spiritual adepts have experienced those painful, sharp, severe, acute feelings due to overexertion, no one has done more than me. So just saying, I did everything that's humanly possible. Describing starving himself, you know, all these kinds of things. And then he says, you know, that he had a different idea. Like, okay, clearly those meditation masters didn't work. Asceticism didn't work. So there has to be a third way. And many of you will know this is kind of like the middle way between this uh, asceticism and indulgences. And this is like the road of practice. Then he found the Bodhi tree, another pleasant place to practice. Eventually sits down and becomes awakened. That's all kind of the story about how that happens. So the Buddha is telling this story to Prince Bodhi. Kind of to say, like, you know, look, I really tried this painful thing and it didn't lead to pleasure. It led to this exhaustion and due to my overexertion and straining and striving. And it wasn't until, you know, that Buddha went another way, that's this third way between the extremes of indulgence and austerities, but the way to practice. Um, the way that the Buddha described it, his own practice, doesn't mean everybody has to do this, but his own practice included the jhanas. These are meditative states that are quite pleasurable. So instead it was actually through pleasure that he found his way towards awakening. So he said, pleasure is, and happiness and joy, these are integral parts of practice. 
right? Many of you might know the seven factors of awakening include happiness and joy and concentration, including the jhanas. It doesn't have to be the jhanas, but often is. So then after he tells all this to uh, Prince Bodhi, so then Prince Bodhi says, ah, well, when a person has the Buddha as the teacher, right, because the Buddha did this without a teacher, so he had to try all these things and discover what didn't work. So Prince Bodhi says, oh, well, now that you know that it works, it's got to be easier. So Prince Buddha says, when a person has a Buddha as the trainer, how long does it take to become awakened? Right? We don't blame him for asking this question, right? I think all of us would ask this questions. Is it going to be hard and how long is it going to take? I think we ask this about so many things in our lives, right? Is this, am I going to do this? How, how hard is it going to be? And what is it going to take? And the Buddha replies with a question to the prince. Instead of saying right away, he asks the prince a question. Prince Bodhi, are you skilled in the art of wielding a hooked goad while riding an elephant? I don't know exactly what a hooked goad is, but it's something that one does when they're riding an elephant. Prince Bodhi, here's a skill that you have, or do you have this particular skill? And Prince Bodhi says, yes, I am skilled in that. So the Buddha asks him some questions. Well, suppose a person were to come to you, Prince Bodhi, and asked you to train them in working with an elephant with a hooked goad. If that person did not have any confidence, could they achieve what could be achieved if they did have confidence? No. Well, are you like kind of am I saying that the negative right? If they didn't have any confidence, you can't achieve what you could achieve if you did have confidence. Kind of makes sense, right? And then the Buddha says, if that person had no vitality, could they achieve what a person who had vitality could achieve? No. If that person were dishonest and had no integrity, could they achieve what an honest person with an integrity could achieve? No. If a person had energy, did not have energy, could they achieve what a person with energy could achieve? No. If that person were unwise, could they achieve what a person with wisdom could achieve? No. So the Buddha has outlined five qualities here. And Prince Bodhi is saying, you know, wow, if they had, if a person had even one of those qualities, they could train under me, like one of those five. If they had confidence, vitality, integrity, energy and wisdom they could practice under they could learn from a prince bodhi and then the buddha says well these are these five factors of endeavoring there's a list and the buddha's teachings that we don't talk about as much but i think it's such an interesting list 
because this is a common question. Like, how much effort to apply? And what does effort look like? And is that the only thing that's needed? Because sometimes when we get stuck, we feel like, okay, I just have to push harder. I just have to do the same thing, but more. I've did a lot of that in my early practice. And I tried to crush mind with mind. I didn't know that expression, but I somehow thought that I had to make my mind be a certain way. And there was this tension and I would like meditate with like this, you know, this kind of thing, you know, just really trying to strain and strive. It didn't work. It didn't work. For me, I, one of the times when I um, really started to feel like there's some movement, some real movement in my meditation practice, was this time when um, I had some uh, physical difficulties. And so I had to lay down. I couldn't meditate sitting up. It was quite something, because you can't strain. It's hard to strain as much like when you're lying down. And... Uh, I just realized, oh, this is a whole different way to practice with still with this commitment to practice with some diligence and some sincerity, but without the tightness and the straining. I just felt kind of like a a certain like a deepening and a letting go and a settling that started to point the way like, oh, this is the direction to go, not this real straining and striving that I had been doing. And to be sure, the teachers had been telling me, Diana, you know, back off, you're a little too tight. And I was like, what do they know? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, like this worked for everything else in my life if you just have to work really hard. Because it's true, right? For some things in our life, working hard really does, is the right way. To get through school, sometimes it's a lot of work. To have difficult conversations with people so that you can like really allow your relationship to grow and mature. It's a lot of work. Sometimes jobs are a lot of work to work with difficult people or maybe they're taxing in all kinds of different ways, deadlines. So this idea of the kind of like pushing is familiar to us because it works in so many areas of our lives. It doesn't work the same way in meditation. We need a certain amount of effort, but it only goes as far as it goes. I mean, it'll work until it doesn't kind of thing. So I'd like to unpack a little bit this five factors of endeavoring, five factors of applying oneself, five factors of working, five factors of... um, I'll just maybe say, endeavoring is kind of an odd word. Endeavoring, working. But something to, for anything you want to do, and this is being applied to practice, but anything you want to do. Confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, wisdom. Confidence. It makes a difference whether you think task you're embarking on is even possible. I don't think that I can fly. I am not practicing flying, right? I just, because I just don't think that it's possible. 
So you have to have a certain confidence that it is possible. And maybe even this goes without saying, but sometimes it can be worthwhile to you know, investigate, like, do we have confidence that A, it's possible to find greater peace, ease, freedom, happiness, well-being? Do we think that's possible for us in this lifetime? And do we think that we have the capabilities? You do have the capabilities. If you're sitting in this room, you have the capabilities. And I'll, I'll go over that a little bit more here. But just so confidence, right? Just to, it's kind of like, it sometimes goes without saying, but a certain amount of confidence is needed. And it's not an accident that this is the first item in the list. We have to kind of believe, yeah, this is possible. And humans can do it, and um, and uh, I can do it. And so the Buddha, um, he also says, this whole idea of confidence, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed over a part, but that's okay. So this um, also gets this word, Sada in Pali. Dharma teacher Pali would say sada, but if you're, yeah, Pali is sada, and it often gets translated as conviction. So, like, just this, yes, this is possible, or faith. But often, when we hear the word faith, many of us think about uh, this unverified belief. You know, just uh, beliefs you have to adopt, and that's not what's being pointed to here. It's the faith that greater peace, freedom, and ease is possible. Maybe you haven't experienced it yet, but this idea that more is possible. That's what's being pointed to here is faith. And then vitality. This sense of just like having some uh, enough, maybe like energy or consciousness or awakeness. And it can be just enough vitality to just hear a Dharma talk. Maybe it's not even like coming to a place, driving to IMC, but maybe there's even people on YouTube who are lying down in bed listening because they're ill and that's all they can do. And that's all that's needed. It's just this vitality, just enough to be able to like just be aware of what's happening there's a sutta where the Buddha is sick and he is laying down. He's very sick. And somebody comes to him and chants and the seven factors of awakening to him. And this is what was kind of like needed for the Buddhas to maybe have some more energy. And maybe that was all that at that time when he was really sick, he was capable of. So the sense of vitality, it's not asking a lot from us but maybe this um, idea of being able to take in some information and process it sometimes when we're in extreme pain we can't do that or you know, we can't do that so maybe vitality is also pointing to a certain amount of uh, wherewithal maybe but I would also say that it's enough vitality also to understand, okay, 
some things are supportive for my practice and some things are not supportive. I think all of us, when we've been injured or sick, we all have noticed that if we get riled up and filled with hatred and rage towards the sickness or the injury or someone else or some institution or just getting filled with hatred and rage does not in the long run make us feel better. Any pain that we have does not go away. It just becomes more acute. Instead, it's when we can open and relax as best we can in whatever way is available to us at that time as opposed to just you know being filled with rage or hatred. So the vitality is being pointed to is to recognize this, just to know this, oh yeah, when I hate that this is happening to me, makes it worse. If I'm able to say, okay, this is what my life is like at this moment, to turn, be able to turn towards it as best we can, as best we can, then it's better. So the type of vitality is pointing to, to recognize that it doesn't mean that you can stop the hatred and rage, you know, right then. This is a natural reaction. A lot of humans have this, of course, when we have injuries, we're really sickness, or we're really sick. So I want to be careful here because sometimes this, uh, this Pali word is, um, gets, well, I guess literally it's a, a papado, gets translated as a little, like, oppression. Like, there's little of anything that's holding you down. So it's not, you're not being held down too much. And um, a patanko is also kind of like the sickness isn't too much. That's uh, what these words that I'm translating as vitality. Sometimes people use this word health. And then you start to get this feeling like, but I'm, I'm not healthy. Because the Dharma world is filled with people who found their way to the Dharma because of sickness, because of illness. And I can imagine it would be demoralizing to hear like, wait, I have to be healthy, but I, I'm not. So it's more about vitality, just having this a certain enough kind of energy there. So confidence, vitality, and then integrity is the third one. And this is related to not being deceitful, not being fraudulent, um, not being devious, but instead to be forthright, to be open, to be honest, to be authentic. That's also what's being asked as part of this, to this uh, quality of endeavoring. And um, in the suttas, it points to, in particular, to be open and honest with one's teachers or companions in the spiritual life. It's kind of the language that's used. So there's a way in which we might want people to think the best of us. I know when I was practicing, I kind of wanted the teachers to like me and think I was a good student. And so, you know, I was reluctant to show them all the ways that I was struggling. 
and that's normal, right? I think all humans, we do this often. We want to kind of like give our best impression. But this is pointing to, like, you can do this. You can tell the things that are going well. But in order for people to really be able to support you, they need to know where you really are struggling. And in order to know where you're struggling, there needs to be some authenticity and some honesty. doesn't mean that you have to tell everybody all the time and be worn on your sleeve, but the people on the path with you or your teacher to be able to say, you know, this is what's going on. And I would say it's most helpful to say kind of like what's going well and where the struggles are. Kind of like the full picture, kind of like this forthrightness, this honesty and this openness. So that's the third quality is integrity. The fourth one is energy. So the energy is this, the energy here is the one that's related to right effort on the Eightfold Path, if you're familiar with the Eightfold Path. And this points to the energy to not only recognize that, for example, feeling a hatred or rage towards not feeling well um, isn't helpful, or that uh, to recognize that having a little bit more ease or openness towards what's actually happening in the moment is helpful. The energy is pointing to having the having the intention, kind of like this. Okay, I want to turn away from the hatred and rage that is a habit, and I find myself falling into and getting overwhelmed with. I want to see if I can turn away for example. So that takes energy to even set that intention. Okay, I can see this isn't helping me. Is there another way? And that, this, the energy is pointing to that. Cultivating what is helpful and letting go what isn't helpful. This is what the energy is about. And for some people, it's just to be able to recognize. Initially, it's just to be able to recognize Okay, I can't help myself, but I know this isn't the way that's helpful. And to set the intention to be able to go another way that is helpful. So the energy is about this. And then the last one is wisdom. And the wisdom is pointed to here in a particular way. It's defined in a particular way. It's about recognizing that experiences arise and pass away. They come and they go. They're impermanent. They are inconstant. They are not steady. Everything, all of our experiences arise and pass away. And having this, like seeing this, having this wisdom, like really understanding this, does a number of things, including it helps us to put our priorities in order, like, okay, Things aren't going to last forever. Nothing lasts forever. doesn't mean that uh, this particular ailment I have, I'm really focusing on sickness here, but this works for people who are healthy as well. doesn't mean that this is going to go away. It doesn't mean it's not going away. It means that maybe it fluctuates in its intensity. This love that I feel for somebody doesn't mean it's necessarily going to go away, but it's going to change. It's going to have seasons. Of course it is, just like everything. 
So recognizing that helps us to put things into priority. Maybe we're not going to live for... Maybe recognizing that we're not going to live forever helps us to say, okay, this is what's important, and maybe it's not so important to prove to others that I'm right all the time or to correct them when they do things wrong or something like that. So there's a way this impermanence help, might help us put our priorities, kind of shift our priorities when we, when we recognize we're not going to live forever and what we're experiencing is not going to last always. It's going to wax and wane and maybe disappear. We don't know. Impermanence also, of course, um, helps us to recognize this is where growth and development, cultivation, is another way of saying impermanence means things are changing. So there's a way that we can say, oh yeah, just like this is changing, this, uh, this, com- this uncomfortable feeling in my knee, and the same way my ability to sit still for however long is changing too. So, so impermanence also right, is this idea that things grow and develop. And then maybe a third thing that I'll just say about impermanence here is it just doesn't make sense to hold on to things that are changing, that are inconstant and are going away, coming and leaving. So there's just naturally a certain amount of letting go that happens. So I believe this is why wisdom is like the fifth element in these five factors of endeavoring. Confidence, vitality, integrity, wisdom, I'm sorry, uh, energy and wisdom. So then after the Buddha gives this talk to Prince Bodhi, remember he asked, well, how long? How long is it going to take to become awakened? And the Buddha answers him. He says, he says, I have to get back to this so I can kind of quote uh, here. He says, oh my goodness, um, <laughs> I have to go back a number of pages here. Um, so the, after the Buddha, he had gave uh, Prince Bodhi these uh, confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, and wisdom, these uh, five endeavoring. And then he says, if a person has these five factors of endeavoring, they can realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in seven years. But let alone seven years, they could realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in six years. Well, let alone six years. If you have these, you can do it in five years. Let alone five years. If you have these five factors, you can do it in four years. Let alone four years. You can do this three years, two years, one year. Let alone one year, seven months. Let alone seven months, six months. Five months, four months. The Buddha just keep on going down, right? Two months, one month, seven days. (laughs) You know where this is going, right? Six days. One let alone six days, one can realize the supreme end of the spiritual path in five days. Let alone five days, four days, three days, 
two days. And then he says, let alone one day. One can be instructed in the morning and achieve awakening by the evening. And Prince, the Prince Bodhi is delighted. And he says, oh, oh, Buddha, oh, the teachings. How well this explains the teachings. That one can be instructed in the morning and achieve awakening in the evening. And then someone that's standing near Prince Bodhi says to him, yeah, though you speak like this, Prince Bodhi, you don't go for refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, right? He's not taking the Buddha as his teacher. And then Prince Bodhi says, oh, don't say that. I've heard, I've heard and learned the teachings in the presence of my mother. When she was pregnant with me, she took refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then when I was really young and I had a wet nurse, they carried me to the, um, where the Buddha was, and the wet nurse took refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then I can imagine everybody's going, that doesn't count. <laughs> and then Prince Bodhi, he finally says, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So this is a story of somebody who's trying to figure out, like, how much work do I need to do? Like, how long is it going to take? How much work needs to be done? And I think that Buddha, he's pointing to, it's not just about straining and striving, because he tried that, it didn't work. Instead, to think about this confidence or vitality or integrity, maybe these are some things for us to think about. Do we have confidence that we can have some more happiness, health, uh, well-being and peace and freedom? And if not, is there something that we might do are we being open and honest with those people that, are, that could help us and support us in this practice, sharing our struggles as well as what's doing well? And I would say sometimes we have friends that we just struggle with, we complain about how hard it is. Maybe being forthright and is to say, you know, these things are going well. And then having the energy to say, you know, I want to cultivate what's uh, helpful and skillful. And then the wisdom to recognize, yeah, things change. They're always changing. And this is how one can find the way towards awakening to greater peace, freedom, and ease. So Prince Bodhi, and maybe I'll say for those of you who don't know, Bodhi means awakening. And this for me has been a real head-scratcher. Why is he called Prince Awakening when he's the one who doesn't really want to practice. So I don't know, this might be something to, maybe there's a secret meaning there that I don't know. But So thank you. Thank you for your attention. And I'd like to open it up to some questions and comments. Should I say this list one more time? <laughs> uh, well, I was oh, yes. Can I ask you, Diana? This list sounds familiar to the five faculties, but not exactly. 
Is, is that right? Yeah. So there's the five faculties, which has three the same. Right. It has um, that's that's uh, mindful. Uh, sorry, uh, faith, mindfulness, energy, concentration, and wisdom. So it has faith, energy, and wisdom. The three are the same. And then there's a third list of five. That's called uh, the. We, we can translate it as the practitioner's powers or something, and it has faith, energy, and wisdom. And the other two that are different are Hiri and Otapa. I could give a whole talk on Hiri and Otapa. Those are like um, um, conscience and. Let's see, what's a modern way? They often get translated, which if I don't like is, it's a not wanting to cause harm and then feeling regret if you have caused harm. That's Hiri and Otapam. That's a way that I could. So there's a number of these three lists of five and uh, that are similar that have, that share the faith, uh, energy, and wisdom. Thank you. So maybe I'll just say this list one more time. Uh, faith, uh, vital, or I'm using the word um, confidence, vitality, integrity, energy, wisdom. Yes, can we maybe the microphone here, and then this will be the last one. So, um, no, it's on. Okay. <laughs> Um, so there's another list of five uh, hindrances, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering if there's like some kind of, and you know, a relationship between the uh, the five factors of endeavoring and the five hindrances. Like there's the the near enemy and far enemy, and I'm just like. Yeah, yeah, this is a good question. Um, there isn't a direct relationship. Um, it's, a, you know, the Buddhist love lists, right? So there's even like a whole chapter of a book that is nothing but a list of fives, lists of fives. So there's a lot of lists of fives. So, um, But I think that one could apply these factors of endeavoring um, towards like working with the hindrances. That's just Diana's interpretation, but there isn't a direct correlation. Thank you. It's a good question, though. Right? These lists, these five. So I'll end here, and I wish you all a safe travels home and a lovely rest of the evening. If you like, you're welcome to come up here and talk to me. So thank you. <laughs>